0: In the wake of my mother's death last year, and in the days and weeks following her memorial service this past summer, I thought about the meaning of her life and the gift of it. And from this vantage point, it strikes me that what matters to me most about her wasn't where she went to school or the kind of work she did in England or something that you could write on a resume. What matters to me most about her is who she was, the kind of person she had become. At her memorial service here this summer, one of my sisters stood in this space, and she remembered how, as an immigrant family here in Canada, here in Metro Vancouver, Our dishes were a mix of unmatched plasticware picked up at at, um, garage sales. I was going to say grocery stores, but uh, uh, I meant to say garage sales. And one day when we were living in Surrey, a large box arrived from Japan, a gift from one of our grandparents. We opened it up, and inside were gold-plated, fine bone china dishes. Wow, that's what we thought as well. And my mom thought that we might as well just use them for everyday use, enjoy them. And my sister recounted how our youngest sister, Hannah, who was very small and little at the time, was helping with the dishes, and so she had hopped up and was standing on the kitchen counter. She stumbled and fell, and as she was falling, she grabbed one of the shelves with all those gold-plated dishes on them, pulled it down, And all of those gold-plated dishes smashed into countless pieces on the floor. My mom, first of all, turned to our youngest sister Hannah and made sure she was okay. Then she looked at all those broken uh, dishes and said, you know, it's okay, they were going to break anyway. It's okay, they were going to break anyway. For my mom, people mattered more than Expensive, beautiful things. The great gift of her life was who she was. At the memorial service, um, I also gave some remarks, and I didn't have any notes with me, and so I was going to say something, but it just sort of slipped my mind, and so I'll say what I was going to say there here. Uh, I recalled how when I was in high school, looking at potential universities and then some years later looking at potential graduate schools, there were a couple of prestigious possible schools in the mix. And I recall talking to my mom about them and and seeking her counsel. And she said, don't pick a school just because it's really prestigious. Choose a school that you feel will best prepare you for God's call upon your life. Now, my mom was a graduate of an Ivy League school. She understood the value of an education. She said, look, if you go to a school that's really well known, it'll open doors. That's a good thing. But if you begin to rely on your association with a famous institution instead of God, that will be a disaster. My mom had a way of clarifying what was most important of elevating my vision the great gift of her life was who she was, who she had become. Ghibor Mate is a Vancouver-based physician and a best-selling author. In a talk that he gave, he closed by quoting the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Han, who said, The greatest gift that we can give our children is the gift of our own happiness. What he meant was the greatest gift we can give our kids or those around us, those we are close to, is the gift of our inner well-being, the gift of our peace and joy, the gift of who we are becoming. The greatest gift we can give others is who we are. The greatest gift that we can give our creator is who we are becoming. As Craig mentioned, we're in a series right now on our vision. And as I mentioned last week, when I was a new pastor here back in 96, and someone would approach me and ask me, what's the vision of the church? I would spontaneously respond by saying, our vision is to simply be a place where people of all different backgrounds can discover or rediscover Christ. To be a community of healing for the broken, we're all broken in some way, no matter how good we look on the outside. And then to be a place, a mission sending base that brings Christ's compassion and justice to our world. And today we're gonna be focusing on the part of our vision where we feel called to serve as a community of healing, or as we like to say, a community of spiritual transformation as we encounter the living Christ. The Apostle Paul also had this vision for his life in the communities that he was connected to. In Philippians 3.10, Paul writes these words, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray for a moment. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would speak to us through these words. Through scripture. That we might be changed. In Christ's name, amen. As we look at this passage, we see that Paul really wants to know Christ. And not just in some kind of theoretical, academic way, but he wants to know Christ personally. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. By which he means he wants to know Christ's life power that will create new life, new character in Paul himself. And, and when Paul dies, he trusts that one day Christ will somehow literally raise him from the dead. And then Paul says in, in words that sound crazy to us, I also want to participate in his suffering. We'll explore how suffering can be a means of our transformation a little later in the message. And then in a beautiful passage, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul has this vision of looking to Christ, of us looking to Christ, and being transformed into his likeness with, yes, ever-increasing glory. For the Apostle Paul, his relationship with Christ wasn't some little side interest, but it was truly front and center in his life. He wanted his friendship with Jesus Christ to completely transform him. The Apostle Paul had a great education, as you may know, He had a very prestigious role in his society as a Pharisee, as an expert in the law, in a world where the law, especially God's law, really mattered to people. Paul had honor and influence. These were all really important to him. But when he met Christ, he said, these things, these other things, in comparison to knowing Christ, now seem like nothing to me. In fact, less than nothing, they seem like garbage, because... Knowing Christ is something of surpassing greatness to me. For the Apostle Paul, his relationship with Christ was not a side interest. It was front and center. He wanted that relationship to change who he was, to bring about spiritual transformation. And here at 10th, part of our vision is to encourage one another to make Jesus Christ and our relationship with him front and center so that it transforms us. The great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas observed that money, prestige, power, and pleasure can pull us away from God. These things can easily become idols to us because they whisper to us. They promise that they can fulfill us in a way that only God can. Now, there's nothing wrong with money, prestige, power, and pleasure in and of themselves. In fact, these can be used for real good. But when we love money, prestige, power, and pleasure, and turn to them for our life meaning and for lasting satisfaction, they disappoint us. They leave us empty. They ultimately break our hearts. And so we are not to love these things. We are to use them. We are to instead love people and worship God alone. And worshiping God means making God front and center in our lives so that we are transformed through that relationship. And so this is why part of our vision here at 10th is to make God front and center in our lives and to experience the spiritual transformation that comes from that kind of relationship. In this message, we're going to look at how the path of what we describe as a rule of life and the experience of suffering when it comes into our life can foster this transformation in us so that we become more like Jesus Christ. Here at 10th, from time to time, we talk about living by a rule of life, which is an expression that we get from the monks. Now, some of you have heard of, are familiar with the expression rule of life. And the reason we come back to it from time to time is because living by an intentional rule of life or rhythm of life is essential for our being changed and to our becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new to the expression rule of life, don't let the word rule itself scare you. Because the monks use the word rule in a way that's different from the way you and I use the word rule. When monks use the word rule, they are referring to one of its original root meanings, which simply means trellis. And if you have been to a vineyard in the Fraser Valley or the Okanagan, or the Napa Valley of California, you may know that a trellis is simply a structure that supports a grapevine, enabling it to receive more sunlight, to be pruned and guided in its growth so that it produces better grapes and therefore more delicious wine. And a rule of life is simply a way of life that acts like a trellis in our Lives so that our life is supported with God, so that we experience more of the sunlight of Jesus in our lives, so to speak, more of the pruning action of God, so that we bear more of the fruit of Jesus' character, more of his love, joy, and peace, more of his character. Now, uh, you and I cannot produce grapes. That's God's work in nature. But th- by using a trellis, some kind of support system, we can foster the growth of good grapes. And in the same way, you and I cannot produce the fruit of God's character in us. But by using a trellis, living by a rule of life, a way of life that supports our life with God, we can foster the growth of Christ's character in us, foster the the, the fruit of his love, joy, and peace in, in who we are. Now, if you are new to the concept of a rule of life or coming back to it after a while, it's really important to start simply. A rule of life, a trellis, is composed Of some practices that support our relationship with God, some spiritual habits. And so if you are new to this or coming back to this after um, some time away from this kind of life, start simply. Maybe begin by simply picking one practice that will connect you with God. So for example, uh, you might pick the practice of Sabbath. On uh, page 33 of a book I wrote called God in My Everything, there is this graphic. And on the bottom left is the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath, ideally, is a 24-hour period of rest. And I remember on one Sunday some years back, a student at UBC, after one of our worship services, jumped out from the side of the pew where uh, Susan and Steve are s- sitting right now. And she approached me afterwards, and I don't know if she was literally jumping up and down, but she had a ton of energy. A- and she said, You know, I had never heard about the Sabbath before. A couple of months ago, you taught on it. I'm now practicing a Sabbath, and I have so much energy and focus during my six days of study. I feel so much more alive. And and in fact, I have so much more energy that uh, I want to volunteer. I want to volunteer at 10th or at UBC. The practice of Sabbath was awakening her to God in new ways and to her very life. I remember talking to someone else in our faith community who uh, had a demanding job, was raising a couple of young kids as a single father. And he shared with me that if he took time in the morning to simply do a little stretching. I can't illustrate this very well because I'm not very flexible. And some time to meditate. He said, God shows up more in my day. Now, obviously, God was with him all the time. God wasn't showing up for him more in his day. But through this simple practice of stretching and meditation in the mornings, he was becoming primed to notice God more in his day. And so if you're new to a practice of a rule of life, we're coming back to it after some time, start simply, pick a practice that connects you with God, and uh, and then pick some practice that makes you come alive. On the graphic, uh, on on the image in the book, uh, there is the word play. Is there something that you do, play or otherwise, that brings you unfettered joy? I was talking to someone recently in our community who works as a medical resident. She has a really uh, demanding schedule. Some of her shifts are 30 hours long. And I asked her the question, "Do you do anything that helps you relax and enjoy life?" And she said, "I love to play the flute, and I 've joined an orchestral group, and when I 'm playing the flute, I feel alive, I feel relaxed, I feel a great deal of joy." And so Again, if you're new to a rule, coming back to it, start with a practice that lifts you to God. In time, pick another practice that makes you come alive. Hopefully those practices synergize as you are connected to God. Hopefully that makes you feel alive. As you engage in something that makes you feel alive, hopefully that makes you feel more connected to God. And then third, pick a practice in time that connects you to other people in relationship or through service. It's almost impossible, if not impossible, for us to really grow into Christ-likeness if we try to do it all by ourselves. You know, some of you may be looking at me and, and assuming, uh, isn't it your job to grow? Isn't it your job to grow? I, yeah, I, I don't think of it exactly that way, but maybe in part. I can't grow uh, without walking alongside someone. And so on Friday afternoons, I typically have a Zoom call with a friend who formerly was a pastor in a different um, sort of part of his vocational life. Um, In a past vocation, he's now a professor at a seminary. And we share about our lives, we catch up, we talk about our temptations, our struggles, our sins. We pray for each other. It sounds sort of intense, but this kind of open accountability is really life-giving. It really is a gift. And uh, as, as, as Craig knows, as, as he can uh, you know, direct you, uh, there are all kinds of ways here at 10th to walk with others, whether it's in a life group or a soul trio or through spiritual direction. I was talking to someone uh, recently in our community who said, you know, technically I'm not in a life group, But I am in a a ministry group that, that helps serve newcomers to Canada. And this ministry group acts as a kind of life group for me. And so find a practice that connects you with God, that makes you come alive, and one that leads you into relationships with people. Now, if you are inspired to craft a rule of life or recraft one as we launch this fall, and, and then your life starts to feel like this oh, heavier, I, it's a burden. You've almost certainly constructed something that is. A self-made routine, not a spirit-inspired rhythm. Because if your rhythm is really spirit-inspired, it's not going to feel like, oh, it's killing me. It's going to feel like this. It's going to feel like I'm supported. My life feels lighter and freer. You know, this, uh, this pandemic, these last two or three years, has been a kind of test case in human thriving. It's been tough for a lot of us especially certain parts of it. And it's been tough for me during parts of the pandemic as I've learned about people in our community that have, or are suffering, uh, as I've learned about parts of our world that is in great pain. And this rule of life has made a profound difference for me in these last two or three years. You know, there have been mornings when I've woken up feeling anxious, somewhat down, a little depressed even, and, uh, because of the, the stresses of our world. And I engage in a little bit of exercise, go for a run, go for a swim, engage in some meditation. And it's not like at the end of that time, I've always felt sort of on top of the world, but I always have felt lifted up. I always feel drawn to God. It's been, it's been a lifeline for me. And my closest neighbor, my wife, who knows that I'm a naturally restless person, has observed that through my practice of silence and meditation, I've become a calmer person, and that I am more present in the room. This rule of life, this simple rhythm, has been life changing for me. I know that many of you have read uh, God Am My Everything, but if you haven't, and you'd like to craft a rule of life uh, for this fall, uh, for the coming year, um, pick one up afterwards. Uh, all the proceeds, the net proceeds from sales, uh, supports missions that work with vulnerable children. I don't receive a penny, but if you can't afford the the discounted price, just pick up a coffee, take it as a gift from me. I've set aside some of my own money to be able to gift the book to others. So one path of transformation is by living by an intentional rule of life. Another path of transformation is the one of suffering. The Apostle Paul, incredibly, says, I not only want to know Christ, but I want to participate in his suffering. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. That sounds so crazy, so counterintuitive, so counterhuman. What does he mean by this? The Apostle Paul would have thought that was crazy at one point in his life, too. But he had suffered a lot during his lifetime. He was beaten for telling people about Jesus. He was imprisoned. He also suffered from this thing that he described in 2 Corinthians 12 as a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that thorn was, but some scholars speculate that it might have been an ailment in his eyes that not only compromised his vision, but generated real pain for him. And so the Apostle Paul prayed not once, twice, but three times God, please take this thorn in my flesh away from me. Please heal me of this suffering. And God three times said no. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so when Paul learned this, he had a change of heart and he said, I will then rejoice in my suffering because when I am weak, then I am strong in God, don't mishear me. Don't misunderstand me. I am not encouraging you to go looking for suffering. I am not encouraging that. Don't go looking for suffering because suffering eventually will find you. (laughs) And if you're in a situation where you're facing down suffering and you cannot easily avoid it, Face it with the grace of God, which is sufficient for you. Face it with the power of God, which can be perfected in this difficult circumstance. And know that God is causing all things, according to Romans 8.28, to work together for your good meaning, according to the text, you're being conformed into the very image of Christ. My colleague... Jade, at our East Van site, sometimes leads the connection dinners that Craig leads here and will lead today. And he sometimes has people break break up into twos and has them talk about the most transformative experience of their lives and then comes back into the larger circle and says, does anyone want to share? And he's astonished at how many people say the most transformative experience of my life was this painful experience. There's someone in our faith community who faced a life-threatening illness, which is now in remission. God had, for a long time, been front and center in his life, but I noticed that as he faced this illness, in his vulnerability, he became even more alive to God. His family was more precious to him, and he cherished the gift of his life even more. With God in his suffering, it transformed him and made him more like Christ. The famous psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, wrote these words. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Beautiful people do not just happen. And if you want to become a beautiful person because of Christ's presence in your life, live by an intentional rule or rhythm of life that connects you more closely to him. And should suffering come into your life, allow that suffering by the grace of God to make you more like him. I began this message by recalling the passing of my own mother. And in the wake of her passing, it struck me that insofar as my immediate family is concerned, There is no generation ahead of us. My dad has gone on to be with the Lord in 2015, now my mom. And so my siblings are now the next row up. And I thought about this image, which I think comes from Germany, of life being lived in a kind of theater where each row represents a generation. And in our family, my parents' generation, my parents have, in a manner of speaking, stood up in the theater and walked out as they've passed on. And so now my siblings and I are next up. It's our turn next, whenever that may be. It's a sobering thought, but it also clarifies what is most important in life. And what is most important in life is not where we went to school. It's not our prestige. It's not our power. It's not our influence, but it's who we are and who we are becoming by the grace of God. That's the greatest gift we offer those around us. And who we are and who we are becoming is the greatest gift we offer to God. And so if you believe that to be true and want to experience transformation, don't make God and your relationship with Jesus a side interest in your life. Make your relationship with God front and center. Let everything else fall away in a manner of speaking, make God front and center and then say with the Apostle Paul, make his words your vision, which is the vision of our church, which happens to be the vision of our church and say in your heart, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering so that somehow I become like him in his death so as to somehow attain resurrection from the dead, so that I become a person, like Christ, of ever-increasing glory. Let's pray together. Uh, In the presence of God, in a spirit of prayer, um, I want to ask you a question, and then I'm going to invite you to respond. Is Jesus Christ and your relationship with him front and center? And if not, would you like to make your relationship with him front and center so that it transforms your life? And if your answer is yes, or if you would like to reaffirm that Christ is the most central person in your life, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to simply raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you but I'm gonna invite you to raise your hand as an outward indicator to yourself and to God that you want your relationship to be transformative, your relationship with God to be transformative and the central thing in your life. So take a moment to consider that. And without any pressure, let me invite you, if it's your desire to make Christ front and center in your life, to simply raise your hand Just go ahead right now, wherever you are. And if you're online and if you're not driving, you can do the same. You can join me. Just keep your eyes open if you happen to be driving. You can put your hands down. And then perhaps you would wanna pray by your spirit. Give me the wisdom and the courage to craft a simple rhythm or rule of life that supports my life with you so that I become like you. And should suffering come into my life, may your grace be sufficient for me so that I will be able to say, so that I can say, when I am weak, then I am strong. So that I can say, your power is perfected in my weakness. May it be so for each of us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.